Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Medical Device Sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. I hope you're having a great day. Hope you had a great week. I know I did. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of right in times of right. Yes, I actually said that the other day. I've been in Mobile, Alabama for 30 days, and it's already starting, stretching out that eye. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. Speaking of assimilation, there's a lot of food to assimilate this time of year, especially if you're following your National Today calendar. On the 8th, we're looking at National Brownie Day, followed closely by the 9th on National Pastry Day. Wash it all down on the 10th with National Lager Day. And then coming on to 12th, that starts all over again. Gingerbread House Day, followed by National Ice Cream Day. Now, that's an important day because that's National Salesperson's Day, which I'm sure all of your accounts will be celebrating. Small gifts under $50 are appreciated, as are any food items. You might even want to ask for a horse because it's National Horse Day. And then it starts all over on the 14th, National Boss Day. A lot of food on the table, a lot of food on the table in the ORs these days. I've learned if you're going to keep it under control, don't eat 99% of what you deliver and don't eat what's sitting in there between cases or they'll need a forklift to get you out of the hospital January 1st. Well, I can tell you one amazing thing we have on our table today is an interview with the iconic Dr. Claudia Thomas. She has the distinction of being the first African-American female orthopedic surgeon here in the United States. There's an amazing book out there about her life called God Save Life. It's available on Amazon. The link is in the show notes. I've already gotten a copy and checked it out. Just an incredible, awe-inspiring story. And we all have the privilege of getting to sit down and hear part of it today. So welcome to the show, Dr. Claudia Thomas. Well, uh, thank you for inviting me. Dr. Thomas, you have just an incredible legacy in the orthopedic surgery space, and I can't wait to ask you questions about the 60s and Vassar College and Hurricane Hugo and and even your issues in the what you refer to as your final storm and your your role as an author but first i want to go back to the high school of music and art in new york city what put you on the path to medicine and what was it like growing up the path to medicine was one that i followed because i didn't follow a path however <laughs> much sense that makes to you um and what i mean by that is i've uh, I've had contact with a lot of young people. I've mentored a lot of young people and I've interviewed young orthopedic surgeons coming into the field. And, and most of them um, give you some story about how when they sprained their ankle or broke their leg at, at, at five years old, they knew they wanted to be right. an orthopedic surgeon. And I say bullshit. Um, I think that <laughs> what you become and what you want to become is a conglomerate of experiences through life. And from those experiences, you take out the skills you have, the things you are good at, and the things that you love. If you can combine those two characteristics, you will find your career. 
and you won't be getting disappointments along the road. Oh, this isn't what I thought it was. Let me try law. Oh, uh, this is not what I like. Let let, let me try um, another specialty. Maybe I'll be a, 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 a business person. Let me major in business, have no, having no knowledge what that really means. But um, what I mean by that is that a lot of people drift looking for their specialty and their talent. My parents had no difficulty preparing my sister and I to be in any field we wanted to. And when I, when I came home with that 99 on the math test in the fourth grade, and my father said, what happened to the other point? Um, that was a period wow. of my time. I will never forget. He figured that if I could get 99, I could get 100. And I've, I've never seen my father so disappointed because he usually had a big smile on his face. But, you know, he was dedicated to his children having opportunities and doing their best. And, and my mother was dedicated as well. This is a combination of parenting that one does not see anymore. Now, this is a part of the, uh, the past that I will, I will, I will honor. Um, I'll wear a MAGA hat for that, <laughs> if that's what it's referring <laughs> <Right>. to, <laughs> where parents were yeah. parents. And their first concern was their child, not the 100-inch television in the living room. So um, this this taught me to get hundreds in math. And, of course, this skill got me through college and medical school and orthopedic surgery. My mother um, was my first teacher. And before my way before my feet could touch the ground when I was sitting in the kitchen chair, she taught us mathematics the alphabet, reading, and writing. This was all before kindergarten. She gave Catherine, my sister, and I a head start. So the collaboration between my parents as to what um, <clears throat> their children would, would do was that anything they, their hearts desired and that they could do well. So my sister has a law degree and I have a medical degree. I was an artist since I was a little child. I liked to draw. I liked to paint. And um, New York City has what are called specialized schools, Boys High, Bronx High School of Science, Stuyvesant. These are public schools that have no tuition, but they're, they're on the category of a private school. Uh, and academic excellence is required in addition to your musical or your artistic skills. So I applied to the High School of Music and Art. My hundreds in maths looked very good, you know, on my applications. And um, I got in and I focused on art. Uh, some of my best paintings were done in high school, as a matter of fact. <laughs> but I was smart enough to know that uh, I wasn't going to go the true liberal arts route and try to be an artist or something like that, you know, because I didn't want to starve. I was fortunate enough to live in a city that had a regent scholarship program, which gave you significant financial support to any school in New York State that you chose and got into. So I uh, attended Vassar College, which I didn't know a darn thing about. But my mother, while working for Head Start, she actually did become a Head Start worker when the kids finally got off to high school, my sister and I. And she got into the job market, and that really uh, suited her talents. 
Um, and while working at Head Start, she met a woman who was a trustee at Vassar. The woman uh, questioned my mom, Daisy, about you know her, her family and her children and learned that she had a daughter applying to college, me, and recommended Vassar College and said, Vassar College would be so lucky to get Claudia. Now, if that is an encouragement, <laughs> so I applied and right. I was accepted as a math major because I was still enjoying math and still getting perfect scores. Well, that lasted until probably my sophomore year, but I wouldn't let math go. Uh, I continued until the end of my junior year and said, that's it. Differential um, equations and real analysis just weren't hitting on it for me. It, geometry was fun. It was problem solving. And solid geometry was, was art. It was three-dimensional. Um, my mother had taught me how to sew when I was seven. So I looked towards medicine. I said, well, I've always liked biology and things like that. And uh, maybe I will go to medical school. So this is something that just evolved uh, out of my experiences, my exposure, my putting down the, the, the mathematics as a career and uh, looking into medicine. Now, I want to get into your experience in medical school, but before we leave the 60s, quite a tempestuous time. What was it like to be in college during the 60s? And tell me about taking over the building at Vassar. I was coming of age in the 60s. I realized that there were a lot of people protesting this and protesting that, and um, and my eyes were opened. They were particularly opened on a night in April. Martin Luther King had just been assassinated, and I was sitting in the television room with my red-headed, pigtailed friend, Anne, who I had befriended at Vassar. The response to the news that this gentle, peaceful, African-American leader had been assassinated was completely different on my face with the tears rolling down. I looked over to Anne and it was just another news story. That woke me up that we were very diverse as people and that as a black student, things meant something different to me than they have may mean to my colleagues. I began to, began to observe um, black and white issues, black and white privilege, uh, and the disparities um, that existed at Vassar, which was a microcosm of the world. Vassar had only recently began to accept students of color in the last couple of years prior to me. So it drove me towards other students who looked like me, who thought like me, who had the same concerns as I did which I wasn't particularly seeking out in my freshman year. I was trying to learn how to hold that dimitas cup after dinner and take a sip without spilling it all over my dress, which we were required to wear at dinner. We were little ladies and all these little uh, celebrations and, and uh, ceremonies that I had never heard of. So um, I changed and became much more aware of what was happening in the African-American world, much more 
aware of what people like Malcolm X, Stokely Carmichael were saying and um, became the president of the uh, African-American Students Association. So this um, evolution, if you will, led to us as students, the black students, and there were about 36 of us, realizing how the college was letting us down because of deficiencies in everything from socialization of the black students they brought into to education. We had no African studies, um, and we had quite a few professors, incidents with professors, uh, with one telling a student that uh, black people couldn't speak German. And she went and did a fellowship away and came back in German, his ass, all over the place. <laughs> she spoke, she learned the language and spoke it better than he did. But this kind of this this kind of thing that no one was it was happening to people, but no one was speaking out. You, you know, more likely to hold your head in shame, like you did something wrong when a white person puts you down. You know, so um, we um, approached the college, we meaning the the society, the African American Student Society, and made them aware of the inequities that we felt were going on in the school. And we had nine points, nine demands that included having a black studies program and a black studies center and um, having um, <clears throat> counselors for black students. And so uh, we presented this to the administration, right. including the president, and uh, they rejected any any concerns that we had, you know, they weren't interested in what we felt. When we were turned down from even giving this all a second thought or a first thought, um, the black students held a protest. And we now had, we did get a black house, okay, which was happening very commonly on campuses where students of the same culture lived together. Um, and it was a lovely uh, dormitory, small dormitory that would hold 30 students. Um, so that gave us the chance to meet and to discuss and to plan. Well, they they gave us the, you know, the, the, the boot. What are we going to do? Let them know we're serious. The black students had a protest, a little march. We had a, it was a fall and we had a pillowcase stuffed with leaves and tied off the arms and legs and the snoot and the head and labeled it the administration. It was a, a, a pig in effigy. <laughs> <laughs> and we burned it outside of the alumni house in a, in a cement fa uh, fountain. We set it ablaze. So we got a little more attention, but no one was, was really, um, as we say, no one was studying us. They weren't giving us any concern, anyone with any power. The black students met one evening and decided it was time to do something drastic that would get the attention of the administration and that would cause them to listen to our concerns. We um, told students who were present who would not be willing to go along with any plan we had. We had a very small strategy committee. I think it had two people on it. What would our strategy be for the next step? If there was anyone in the room who would not be able to go along with any plan, we came up with, please leave. We wanted no leaks. We wanted no adverse notice of our activities to go out. And we, we were to return at midnight 
those of us who didn't live in the dorm, some didn't. We were to meet at the at the black house at midnight. Midnight approached, and there was lumber, and there were hoses, and there was rope, and there was the strategy committee who had um, enlisted the help of some of the, the brothers, the black men who lived in Poughkeepsie, who were friends of ours. We marched in two lines toward the main administration building at three o'clock in the morning pitch black and the, the campus had very few lights. And depending upon which supplies we had, uh, we secured all the doors in the main atrium of the administration building. This was you know, a long time ago and there was no cell phone. <laughs> there was not even a phone in the president's house, not an outdoor, any outside lines had to go through the switchboard. That was the heart of the campus. So we um, told the switchboard operator we were occupying the building. And if she wanted to, she could stay and show us how to use the device, which which she did. You know, it took me years to learn. We had um, one student there, <laughs> Maybell Taylor. I suppose I shouldn't be using her name, putting her name out there. But she hasn't changed, and neither have I. <laughs> she learned that in 20 minutes. Right. Um, had control of the switchboard, and we let the operator go in the elevator and then locked it back down on our floor. We had secured the main building of Vassar College. After four days of occupation with the trustees physically called in uh, to the building, uh, it was announced that the college would give us our demands. There would be amnesty for all the students who had been, we didn't know when we, when we went in that building, we didn't know if we were going to stay in school, if we would be expelled. And this is risking everything. Very few people know what it's like to risk everything for a cause you believe in. The sheriff of Poughkeepsie was running for re-election and to make himself look good among his constituents, I guess they were carrying plenty of Confederate flags had decided to come on the campus and quote, because remember we had the switchboard, we could hear every conversation, get the niggas out. So while while he was gonna get the niggas out by you know any means necessary, you know, he was ready to shoot us up. Someone um, contacted Nelson Rockefeller and told him what was going on and he told that sheriff, don't you set foot on that campus. So this was my first experience with standing up for something I believed in, taking risk, and it changed me. It was effective. The school celebrated the 50th anniversary of the takeover last wow. year. <laughs> celebrated, do you hear me? <laughs> because, because they got a permanent black studies program. It wasn't even a, 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 a division. It, it had no longevity in the... Um, contract that that we have with it and that was one of our issues they could you know say okay enough they've learned enough and close the black studies program down um the next day but it involved not only professors who came up from new york city because we were up in the boonies you know 70 mile ride from new york they, they we had professors in our black studies program um who were renowned um in the black community 
historians and poets and authors. Uh, and um, <clears throat> it was quite a good, quite a quite a good program that um, is alive today. One of the stronger Africana Studies programs, which they call it now, which is still alive today, 50 years later, because of what we did. So now it's now now it's a feather in the college's hat. For <laughs> us to have that. I had a wonderful African American nurse uh, that I worked with, and. We've, we used to eat lunch together all the time, and I, I used to love listening to him talk about that era of, he said, you know, you just uh, can't imagine what it was like, you know, with the separate water fountains. Uh, and he said there was a restaurant right there in Smithfield, North Carolina, uh, where he couldn't get food from the front of the restaurant. Had to they go around to the back. Had to go around to the back. Mm-hmm. And... I know that has to write all kinds of things on you. It's just it's just fascinating to see see uh, how things have changed for the better since yes. then. I know you're aware of the Green Book <clears throat> since the movie was made by that name, yes. but there was a book that you traveled with if you were if you were an African American. Couldn't go on every road. Couldn't eat just anywhere. Couldn't use the bathroom any just anywhere. So it listed places that would house blacks and um you know I was young but I, but I I was alive at that time so we always travel with a little porcelain peapot and it was only so like I got older that I that I knew why because you just couldn't depend upon using any bathroom my mother always had our food packed my fried chicken and potato salad and <laughs> or the staples that every black family is aware of, we know what that brown, greasy bag is. That's some fried chicken in there. <laughs> so so we all had the same meal packed with us in the car so that at least we could eat. My father refused to travel through Georgia. He'd go all around the state of Georgia, but he refused to travel. Now, I never learned what that one was about, but I can guess. You know, we were we were not treated kindly below the Mason-Dixon line, and then you had to be careful living above it. But this was an opportunity to, to try to remedy some things. And when the door closed in your face, you found other ways to accomplish these things. So you get out of Vassar, and what was the, the moment you said, okay, let's, let's go the medical route? At the end of my junior year, I said, well, you know, this is a joke. I'm not, this is not what I thought math was. I'm not enjoying it. I don't know what I'm going to do with it because I have, I have little to no patience with children. So teaching was out of the question. And um, my other perception of math was that you sit around all day pontificating uh, formulas and, and, and right. <laughs> you know, some, just, it just wasn't my thing either. Um, and again, that was when I was saying, well, you know, I've got to got to have a major. And since we had legalized black studies, if you will, with the takeover, I majored in black studies. In my senior year, I crammed in um, mammalian physiology, chemistry one, chemistry two, biochemistry one. In my senior year, these were all the prerequisites for medicine. We didn't have a pre-med major. 
and I had the German. You had to have one of these strange languages. <laughs> I, I had I had taken German, um, and I I decided to apply. I really didn't think I was going to get in on time, and that I'd have to do another year of academics um, to be qualified. But um, at a National Medical Association meeting, a dentist, a, a, a white dentist, um, spoke with me and knew that I was trying to go, go to medical school. And he um, told me how to apply. He gave me a list of medical schools to apply to, told me about the MCAT Medical College admission test, which um, I had already uh, passed the deadline of application for, but told me how to get permission to take it late. And I was admitted to the Johns Hopkins Medical School, which I had never heard of. So, you know, I, I just, medicine had not been in my radar. But I had help from someone who advised me. I had preparation by my parents. And thank God I, I was one to listen to my parents. I got accepted to Johns Hopkins. And um, when it came time to rotate on the, you know, the, uh, the different specialties. That is, as a student, you go and you watch this and you watch that and you, you, you um, listen to this and you listen to that. And I was being turned off by everything. I was, I was in medical school and internal medicine seems so boring that you stand outside and you discuss a person's lab values and, you know, you're a group of too many people to fit into the room, but you squeeze in there to see this toe that was on its way to amputation, you know, and or the diabetic out of control and it's, it's internal medicine. So, you know, you had to know their, what, what were their numbers? What was the serum glucose? And this just didn't turn me on at all. Not to mention that they used medical students to run lab values. There was not a phlebotomist. So you, you, had, to, you had to know how to become familiar with the machines that would spin your blood down and tell you what your blood count was and, and your chemistries and, and look at a person's urine under the microscope and count the white cells, um, things that a lab does now. So it was laborious and, um, and boring. Then I came upon the surgeons. And I just knew surgery would be much more exciting because it, there was my, my art, my ability to cut. Wow, a new level of art, which I still loved, but not, you know, I didn't think I would be making a career out of uh, sketching nudes and oil paint. Right. So <laughs> although my, my art was very good, I still have my pictures hanging on the wall here in my home. I, I saw some of your pictures in your book, and you're, a, oh, that's right. you're incredible. Well, um, time took that away from me, but I still have some hope that I might get back into painting at some point but um so i hear was um general surgery and um i came into a case where a, a big fat surgeon um was doing a mastectomy in those days if you had any hint of breast cancer they'd take your whole breast in a bloody fashion savage blood running off the out of her breast onto the table down to the floor onto his shoes and all he can do is get that knife and cut off some more tissue and yell at the nurses, stop that bleeding. Give me a sponge. Oh, just horrible personalities. So <laughs> I said, oh, boy, this is general surgery. So this went on and on. Let it be neurosurgery, um, 
urology. It, it was just un, unkind and was not gentle. Then there were those who were not accustomed to having a woman in the operating room and were not prepared to give me a um, decent locker <laughs> to put my shoes and stuff and my clothes in when I changed into scrubs. So I had to, you know, I, I had to reject the nurse's locker and go into the doctor's locker. Rows and rows and rows of full-length empty lockers. So I, I claimed one. And then this head nurse, this head nurse um, caught me coming out of the doctor's locker. And I, I had made a little female symbol and I taped it on the, on the door, knocked once. I caught somebody in their BVDs at one point, but, you know, they didn't even know I was in there. So she catches me coming out and her mouth flies open. She's, she's lost for words. What, 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 what were you doing in there? I said, it says doctors and I'm a doctor. <laughs> well, they, <laughs> things have changed yes. since then. She, she accommodated me with a decent full-size locker. It wasn't a nurse's locker room, but, you know, I, I, so that, that was my way of handling things. Um, and I think my personality more so than anything else, allowed me to persevere. I can certainly relate to the flying object aspect of the OR. Those days are essentially over, but I've had to duck a few kerosens along the way. That was the general surgeons. Yeah, they throw, they, they, they grab blood clots. This is what I've seen. A fistful of blood clots and throw it against the wall. Oh, my gosh. And then scream at the anesthesia, you stop that bleeding now. You know, just a manic. Many one one cardiac thoracic surgeon walked away from the table and started banging his head against the wall. Uh, <laughs> things weren't going well, so I noticed that pieces of of suture thread, you know, the old nylon uh, turquoise thread. Um, I don't think we use that anymore, but it was it was flowing through the heart and into the body, and he's off banging his head against the wall. So I. <laughs> I said, um, and then he started going into into um, v- VTAC. And I said, oh, excuse me, the patient's going into VTAC. And he sort of woke up and came back to the table. But I couldn't believe that human being. I had never been around people like this. This is a whole different culture from anything I had ever been exposed to. I'd never seen people act like this. And then to be in a position of prominence and responsibility. So this, this to me was like, <laughs> the wild wild west but one day one day i rotated through an orthopedic case and the orthopedic surgeon in contrast with every surgeon i had met so far was kind um soft-spoken i could see him smiling under his mask and invited me to join in the surgery and to scrub in scrub my hands oh boy was i excited put on a gown no one had invited me to do this and not only pull myself up to the table, but I got to put in screws in the bone and to tap in hardware with hammers. And I was doing orthopedics. And not only was I doing orthopedics, um, you very likely know what a slip capital femoral epiphysis is. I do. So when, when this was an African-American uh, pre-adolescent. That's right whose hip had slipped. It, it was like the, the scoop falling off the ice cream cone and it disfigured his hip. And we were putting it in a position uh, that was more anatomic. 
by changing the alignment of the hip. And it had to be planned. We had to take a wedge out and then flip the hip back where it was supposed to be. But you had to measure that wedge. It was solid geometry. I was I was so obsessed with solid with, with, with geometry in high school that I went to Boys High or Stuyvesant or somewhere, one of the boys' schools, to take solid geometry over the summer to get more geometry. And here was my geometry. Here was the carpentry to know what to do with that drill that my father taught me. Here was the art, the sewing, the, the gentle closure of the body that my mother had taught me through sewing. And I loved it. I said, here it is. This is me. So it was something I was good at and something that I loved and was ready for, prepared for. I had the skills. There's only one problem. <laughs> there weren't any women doing this stuff. There weren't any women. There were about 25 women in the country practicing orthopedic surgery. None of them African-American, which I didn't know at the time. You know, I didn't know I was going to be first. I didn't find that out until I completed my residency in 1980. And I went to Yale to do my residency because it was also a kinder, gentler program. People with nice personalities and, and humanity. How can you be in medicine and not have humanity, not care about people? Oh, let's go see the kidney. <laughs> let's go down the hall and see the heart. This is how people refer to patients, refer to other human beings. But not in orthopedics. It suited me just fine. And I was good at it. Your decision to go into further fellowship training in trauma. Uh, Do you just enjoy that aspect of putting, putting broken things back together? Yes. And doing it perfectly. In fact, as, a, as an intern... You know, the lowest person on the totem pole um, in my residency training at Yale. I was so excited to things, see things that I hadn't seen before. Um, well, I may have seen them at, at Hopkins, a glimpse of them, but, you know, what they call both bones of the forearm fractured. This is a pediatric fracture that children get where they fall down on an outstretched arm and the, both bones in your forearm break. And they break in a certain pattern um, that they have to be reduced. And I hadn't seen this, but I knew about it. So the Yale Orthopedic Library happened to be next to the ER in New Haven at Yale. And I would go down there and read the book and see what the book says that you do with this. So I came back and I um, actually exaggerated the deformity so I could break the other cortex, get a perfect reduction, and put the person patient in a splint. And then I'd call the chief resident. I have a both bones of the forearm here in the ER. I've reduced it. It looks satisfactory on post-reduction films. Um, I've put it in a long arm splint. When would you like to see her? <laughs> <laughs> they, they loved it when I was on call rather than, um, okay, I got a, I got a broken arm down here and I'm not sure what to do. Can, can you, can you come and help me? <laughs> that was not my thing. And um, about, Maybe 10 years ago, I attended a Yale orthopedic reunion where all the old farts, now grown, some retired, would meet at the Yale Club in New York. And um, one gentleman, at least 6'4", maybe 6'6", ex-athlete, got up and said, you haven't seen anything until you see Claudia put a dislocated hip back in place. (laughs) And we got so that we we would all call her when we had one. Because that is the biggest joint in the body. 
you require relaxation of the muscles to, to get it back in there. And I invented a technique. I invented many techniques, but I invented a technique that compensated for me being 140 pounds, not 240. We're using the biomechanics of my extremely long arms and legs. I could reduce the dislocated hip in the ER. Didn't have to take them up to the OR. And it, it occurred with great fanfare of, oh, because that thing went back in the joint. Um, and um, so <laughs> I, I left Yale with a reputation, a good reputation of being, as we say, well, <laughs> being the shit. Yeah, she's the shit, man. She <laughs> that's, that's an expression that is sometimes used. Um, <laughs> it means you, you're bad, you know. You, you got it together. But I love I love orthopedics. I I put I love putting people back together, yeah. and I love making diagnoses. At that time, um, fellowship wasn't mandatory like it is now. I had thought I would do hand surgery because of the delicacy and the art involved. But um, one of my residents who was in the hand surgery program that I had been accepted to called me and said, "Don't don't come to this fellowship. The chairman is crazy." Um, it's not a good quality fellowship. So, <laughs> so he, so I, I declined after being accepted. I, he saved me in the nick of time. Plus it was, um, not close to New York and my father was in ill health. So I made a last minute, um, change to stay, to go, go back to the Baltimore area and do shock trauma, which is again, like you said, <laughs> I love putting the bones back together and, and I love, you know, the, the, um, whole hands-on aspect of, um, of trauma. Yeah. And that's why I did my shock trauma fellowship at the university of Maryland. It was right, right after my fellow, after my residency and the end of my residency was when um, Dr. Dr. Epps, who was chairman at Howard university um, orthopedic center um, or orthopedic residency at that time told me I was the first black woman to ever do this. And I said, well, I sure as hell won't be the last. You worked as an assistant professor there at the faculty of Johns Hopkins, but then there came the point where you opened up a private practice on the island of St. Thomas. So how did we get from here to there? St. Thomas was a favorite place for black people to vacation. And um, my mother and her sister, my aunt, had fallen in love with St. Thomas. And I, I had, I don't know if I had been at all at that point because I was too busy going to school. You know, you don't get um, a, a big break in your in your uh, work as a uh, surgeon or as a doctor to go anywhere. So traveling is not a big opportunity. But um, they decided to build a home. They had purchased a lot. And I went down with my sister and my aunt to find a builder in St. Thomas. And uh, I guess it was like waiting to exhale. Is that, is that the movie where is it with Angela Bassett? Yes. Is she, that she right. met this young Jamaican? Right. <laughs> okay. I, don't, I, I think that was the one. Well, he wasn't, he wasn't young, but he was um, a real estate developer. F- fell very much in love with me, or at least he acted like it. He lived in St. Thomas and harassed me until 
I would consider marriage. Um, he was calling me constantly and blah, blah, blah. And my sister said, well, next time he calls you, just, you know, he was, I, I want you in my, in my life. I need you. I said, next, my sister said, next time he calls you, ask him if he's proposing. <laughs> <laughs> because I was, I was getting sort of weary of these calls. So Kathy told me what to do. I asked the question and he said, yes, I want to marry you. And I had, that's not what I expected. But I gave it some thought. I had never had marriage high on my list of priorities. And in a field like orthopedics, um, you just don't have time. Men were not very much evolved at that time. And, and having a husband was not the advantage for me as having a wife was for a man. You know, she didn't have to work. So she could, you know, he could, she could have the babies and take care of them and, and have his dinner ready and do all the cleaning. You know, he had a, he had a slave at home. But for me, it would have just been another pair of dirty drawers to wash. So I, I, um, I did not go looking for a husband while I was training. That's not to say that I didn't find men very entertaining. I just wasn't looking to marry any. Sure. <laughs> but um, if you've ever seen St. Thomas, um, you haven't, she said. You, you, you've not been there. Well, well, most people who see it um, don't want to leave. And it took nothing for me to say, well, sure, I'll um, pack up my bags and, and move down there. So I, I married and in um, 1985 and in 1986, I was living on St. Thomas in my own um, setup as a private practice. My, my husband built my furniture, my exam tables and things. And he was the first man I had ever met who celebrated me. And what I did for a living. With so many of them, you you eventually stumble on this sense of jealousy, or in sense that you're prioritized and elevated above them and whatever their aspirations are. Even other physicians, but they're not surgeons. They don't cut people open and sew them back up. I I said to myself, well, sounds like a plan. And I got married, and then I got sick some years later and came up to the States and, and that, that was it. But it was nice while it lasted. Hugo, were you on the island when that storm hit there? Yes. It was 1989. The the hurricane spawned off the West coast of Africa. And I guess most people know this now, especially those of us living in Florida, because anytime there's a tropical wave and then it becomes a tropical depression and a tropical storm. And um, then a hurricane, you know, you watch, and you keep track. Well, we were we were keeping track. And uh, St. Thomas hadn't had a hurricane in 50 years. All the old folks, the old men, you know, had, who were in their 70s or 80s had been on St. Thomas. Said, ah, she got she gone turn to the north. They they go they all turn to the north. So I'm waiting for her to, <laughs> to become, you know, whatever she's going to become, a tropical depression or what, tropical storm, and turn to the north. Except it didn't. Headed due west, and people began boarding up and preparing the day before she, the hurricane struck. So this was my chance to find out how good a real estate developer my husband was. How was he a builder? Like you know, a good builder. In the middle of the night, we heard people's houses being ripped apart. Most of the houses on St. Thomas or in the West Indies have galvanized steel roofs because the grooves 
direct the water, the rainwater down into your cistern. Most people have a concrete um, a concrete chamber that can hold 35,000 gallons of water. And that's the water you live off of. And I wish that every house on this planet could be dependent upon rainwater so they wouldn't waste it. Wouldn't let it run wild. They're brushing their teeth. You know, you just turn it on and you let it run, running down the sink, and you're not even using it. You know, if you could realize that the value of the water is at the discretion of God as to when it's going to rain, we would be much more conservationists. But this was your water supply under your house with a tropical climate that can work. But during the night, in the darkness, I heard people's roofs, their galvanized steel being ripped off and going like a giant razor blade that was cutting through anything it encountered. When we woke up, there was no life, no green life. All the trees had been, um, they had been stripped of their leaves if they were existing at all. Some of the trees just got ripped out of the ground. And our avocado trees, our papaya trees, our citrus trees were all gone. The storm had taken them because they were heavy with fruit. We never saw them again. We looked down the hill. We lived on top of a high hill on the west side of the island and looked through people's homes because the roof was gone. The sliding glass doors were gone. And we wondered what had happened to the people inside. So we got in the truck at first light with the chainsaw so we could cut our way through the road and saw the carnage. But not a person had been killed. That's when I learned the meaning of God spare life, which I named my autobiography. That or some variant is an expression throughout the Virgin Islands, the West Indies. And people, when you come and go and they greet you, you come into the island, they say, um, see you, or you're leaving, see you next time, God spare life. That means if God spares life or some people, if the, if the creek don't rise. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but it is an, exp an expression. And God spared life during this, listening at those winds, crescendoing. I'd look up at our 20-foot ceiling, no exaggeration, 20-foot ceiling, which extended out over the patio. It was a so it was out there with the weather. So if the patio overhang started to go, the roof would go. And I would look up every time the, the wind the wind got louder, and, and I was waiting for it to fly off. This was the most traumatic experience I have ever had, not knowing if you would be alive the next minute and hearing parts of other people's houses being ripped off and flying through the air. So um, property may have been disemboweled, if you will, with this roofs and its glass doors and furniture gone. Everything my husband had built was intact. And he hadn't had a chance to board it up. He boarded up a couple of houses, but he had a number of houses he had built on the island. Everything was intact, not a broken window, not a roof gone. So he was a hell of a builder. And in spite of all the carnage, people were alive. Some spent the night in the bathtub with a mattress over their head. But after this traumatic experience, and you know, being in the medical field, that stress has a lot to do with disease. I became very sick. I went into kidney failure. And that caused me to leave the island. I had a nephrologist because I had had some abnormalities. So I had one up at the University of Maryland. 
And uh, when I sent him my labs, he said, you're either going to have to go on dialysis or get a transplant to survive. That's when I left St. Thomas and went back up to the mainland. It was 1989. And I believe it was your sister that kind of came to the rescue there, wasn't it? Yes, it was. When Catherine um, heard that I was in kidney failure, she told me, well, there's a woman at our church who's had a kidney transplant. It was from a cadaver, and I don't think they do as well as living donors. I mean, she had done research that I had. Catherine said, I have two kidneys. You can have one of mine. And I, I based that upon her spirituality, her Christianity, and the fact that we grew up in a household where we went to church every Sunday. My father was a deacon. My mother sang in the choir. And one night when a plane was circling over Kennedy Airport, which was then Idlewild, without any wheels, landing gear was gone. He had us get up from the dinner table because back then, guess what? The whole family sat down to dinner. Imagine that. <laughs> what a concept. <laughs> what a concept. We sat down to dinner and ate together. Um, he interrupted dinner. We all were led into the living room. We took hands and kneeled and prayed for those people on the plane. And I believed that it was our prayers that saved them, allowed them to land safely on the belly of the plane without casualty. I learned to pray by example. And I'm not saying I was Pollyanna. I went through the normal adolescent crisis and rebellion, but I never lost that spiritual experience that I learned in my own, my own household. How are we doing now? Kidneys doing good? No issues on that front? I had a second transplant in 2012. The Kathy's kidney is still in there. My cousin gave me a, a, a second kidney because uh, my sister's kidney was getting punky. And um, the one that my cousin gave me is doing great. So that was eight, eight years ago and um, no sign of recurrence of disease. That is awesome. Uh, I was reading around 2004 or five, you ended up moving uh, to Florida and joined a practice there. And I want to ask you a couple things. I, I know you started a mentoring and scholarship program and the diagnostician aspect of your career uh, you really started chasing that. And, and I believe it was uh, osteoporosis was a big passion of yours, wasn't it? Yes, it became a passion once I moved to Florida. Someone tried to get me interested in uh, osteoporosis when I was on faculty at, at Johns Hopkins. And I just wasn't interested in it. It wasn't sexy. It wasn't <laughs> exciting. Sure. Um, however, I, when I moved to Florida in um, when the, 2004, which, as you know, is the retirement capital of the world, I began to see a lot of men and women who were bent over, or as we call it, had kyphosis. So I, I began to investigate these patients, even when they had come to me because their knee hurt. You know, they were in my office. I said, well, who's taking care of your osteoporosis? What osteoporosis? <laughs> that big curve in your back is usually associated with multiple fractures. And the, the kicker is that in osteoporosis, 75% of vertebral fractures, fractures of the vertebrae, have no symptoms. So you're not going to necessarily have pain or any kind of discomfort. You, you just might notice that you're two, to three, four inches shorter than you were in high school. That is just sometimes the only presenting factor. No, Nobody's ever worked you up with a bone density scan, although this is supposed to be done starting 50 years of age. But nobody gave you, got you a DEXA scan. Why? Because they don't give a damn. Let me make myself clear. 
Men taking care of women don't give a damn about the important things. Internal medicine doctors as to why they never ordered a bone density scan, which you're supposed to get every two years after the age of 50, not just women, but men. They don't get them. Oh, I'm too busy um, checking out her heart and, and her lungs. And, you know, they're not concerned. So I got concerned. Osteoporosis kills more women than breast cancer. I didn't know that. Yes. Osteoporosis kills more women than, than breast cancer. And we know that, but we don't care. Oh, so they fall down and break a hip. Oh, well, let's try to prevent the next fracture. How about preventing the first hip fracture? That's what kills us. Hip fractures. Fifty percent of women who break their hip will be dead in a year from complications. So this is a, a horrible disease that is being ignored, and it kills men as well. So I decided I would take interest in osteoporosis and um, get as many people as I could scanned, especially in this huge retirement. Uh, capital where I had all these potential patients and get them treated because uh, uh, drugs work. They're effective and they slow down the progression of osteoporosis and um, reverse the bone loss and make it much more unlikely that a a fall will lead to death. Uh, I can really relate to this. You know, doing this job, I've seen many a hip fracture that would end up just setting off a series of dominoes that would lead to a patient passing. And then I experienced it with my own father. So I'm uh, I'm very aware of that. Yes. My father died of a hip fracture at the age of 64. He had Parkinson's. He would get up at night and wander. And one night he fell and it was a hip fracture. He ended up in a nursing facility, and 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 I don't think he lasted that long as your as your dad. Um, he lasted a few months. He died on Easter night. You know, a lot of a lot of people are are dying. I mean, everyone knows someone who who died of a hip fracture, especially down here. So I do a lot of talks. I do a lot of um, public speaking on osteoporosis because a lot of women have have bought what their doctors have shoved at them. Oh, you don't need to be on this stuff. Oh, this, you don't want to be on that. No, well, what's your plan if you're not going to give them um, pharmacotherapy for their, their osteoporosis? What is your plan? Do you even care? And the dentists are the worst because they're not uh, secure in their treatment skills. They tell every woman who's on an osteoporosis medication, oh, I can't do your surgery until you stop and get off that stuff. Some osteoporosis medicines can cause jawbone loosening. But it's one in a hundred thousand. Are you that unlucky, <laughs> Mister? <laughs> or you just a lousy dentist? <laughs> one in a hundred thousand. Give me a break. Their own journals of dentistry in in uh, 2011, and I think again in 2018, or somewhere around there. Their own journals of dentistry. The the um, is the JBJS of of dentistry has published twice articles that say the woman is in more danger if you stop her osteoporosis medication than she is of anything you could do surgically that goes wrong. You know, it, it, I mean, it's, it's, and it's just been hammered down their throats, but I guess they don't read their journals. I want to talk about mentorship in just a second, but I want you to mentor me and my audience. At, at what age do we need to say, okay, I'm going to pay attention to this issue? And then number two, what does that look like? Minimal. Take a patient's height at least once a year, maybe every six months, and ask them how tall they were in high school. 
you see height loss, then you're suspicious right away. Start ordering bone density scans with what's called a VFA, vertebral fracture analysis, which is an optional adjunct to the DEXA scan. I don't know why it's not mandatory, but it's an optional adjunct that the patient will get if you order it that does a scan of the spine, the thoracic and lumbar spine, and can pick up on osteoporosis fractures. Make sure patients get that with a DEXA scan every two years. You can see the wedge-shaped deformity where the anterior cortex of the vertebra, has, has, which has taken all the, the pressure, has just crunched down, and there may be two, three, four, five in a row. That's why she's hunchbacked. <laughs> Sure. That's what causes the kyphosis. But make sure they start getting DEXA scans every two years after 50. After 50. If you're concerned, after 50. 50 is when you start. If there's a horrible family history, I just ordered one on a 40-year-old because of a family history of fractures. So if there's something that makes the patient more at risk, then you start them earlier. If you don't know how to read the DEXA scan, I mean, there's a radiology impression, but it's not going to tell you what to do. So if you don't know how to make those decisions, refer the patient to an endocrinologist or an orthopedic surgeon who is interested and will do the work. This is laborious. That's another reason nobody wants to be bothered with it. It, it takes a little bit of investment of time and energy and, and mental prowess to follow these people and know who needs treatment. Um, there are three things we look at. T-score, which is the old-fashioned measurement of what your bone density is. If your T-score is minus 2.5 or lower, you have osteoporosis. Now, that's a standard deviation. I don't know why they made it so complex. It makes it difficult to explain to the patients. But minus one is norm. You can go down to minus one bone density because you all start losing bone around the age of 35. So minus one um, is, is a good number. When it starts getting lower to that, which means a larger negative number. It gets to minus 1.5, gets to minus 2.0, gets to minus 2.5, osteoporosis by definition. But some people with T-scores in the normal or low bone mass, which used to be called osteopenia, a term that's very confusing that I hate, a low bone mass, but not yet osteoporotic, not yet at my, minus 2.5, sometimes need to be treated because that's not the only factor that we should be looking at. Number two, FRAX score, F-R-A-X. This is the risk of breaking a bone within the next 10 years. It's calculated based on a number of factors. Has a parent broken a hip? Have you ever smoked? Have you been diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis? Um, do you have thyroid disease? A number of different situations that predispose you to osteoporosis in your history and your T-score, and these things combined. Have you ever broken a bone? The FRAX score takes these factors and calculates your risk of breaking your hip in the next 10 years and the risk of breaking another bone in the next 10 years, like your shoulder, your wrist, your, you know. And uh, that needs to be looked at. And if that FRAX score is abnormal, it should be less than 3% risk of breaking your hip, less than 20% risk of breaking another bone in your body. And if it's not, the patient may be best treated with a drug, pharmacotherapy, even though the T-scores are normal. Number three, you have to examine the spine. That's why I'm telling you to get a vertebral fracture analysis. 
if there has been a vertebral fracture, then the T-scores could be normal. The FRAC score could be normal. Not like, you know, but this is an undiagnosed prior fracture of the spine. The patient wasn't aware because she was among the 75% who don't feel anything when they break their back. All they know is that they're shorter. That's why it's, it's important. It's necessary to pursue loss of height and make sure that these studies are done. But you could just have a vertebral fracture. Nothing else is positive. You need to be on a medication to prevent osteoporosis. So those are the things that one must start doing. And if there's been a fall and they, you know, you can't get a DEXA scan more often than every two years, you know, people don't want to pay for it, although you can um, convince a, a pharmaceutical company, not a pharmaceutical company, but a, um, an insurance company um, to, to pay for that if you have reason. But if the person has fallen or lifted that laundry basket or leaned over the bed to pull the covers over when she was making it and had back pain, there are trivial things that causes sitting down hard in a chair can break your spine. If back pain has developed between those, you know, your visits with this person and it's still there, get a damn x-ray and see if there's a fracture in the spine because that's how osteoporosis people present. So you got to open your eyes, open your, your ears, listen, pay attention and care about this person who's sitting in front of you. They're depending upon you to find out what's wrong. You don't want to do it. It's too much trouble. You don't do it well. Because I've seen people in whom osteoporosis was missing. It was right there in their last DEXA scan. But they didn't want to accept it. The doctor didn't want to do that kind of work. If you don't want to do it, send it to somebody like me who will. And start them on a medication that will prevent the next fracture. It's not comfortable to be broken. If you've ever broken the slightest of bones, your finger, imagine breaking your goddamn hip. And what that feels like, you know, imagine what that feels like. Biggest arch, long bone in, in, in your body. So, so um, care enough to, to work these people up. Everybody should be worked up for osteoporosis. If they've never had a, a, a DEXA scan and they're over 50 male or female, they need a basic DEXA scan, bone density scan. That's what we should be doing. But no, oh, we'd much rather be putting in implants and all the fun stuff and stuff Care you sell these people in <laughs> instruments careful now <laughs> to do careful now <laughs> you know that's 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 more fun that's more interesting i'm going to tell you something my first hip replacement that i ever did was done when i was a resident and i had um a chisel <laughs> a studded chisel there probably is a name for these things and a mallet and I would drive it down the femur to prepare a canal for the implant and the glue and back it back out and drive it down some more and back it back out and secretly sing, um, <laughs> I've been working, oh, da, 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 da. <laughs> secretly <laughs> singing some work song to myself so I could, you know, not um, be aware of the burning in my arm. <laughs> and this is how primitive the instruments were. And then how do you think we... <laughs> uh, finished off the acetabulum so we could put some cement in there with an implant. Well, there, there was this thing that, what, what did it look like? It was um, a reamer, a, a circular, you know, hemicircular or hemispheric reamer on one end. And the other was a, a tool, it was like a wrench. It was a um, thing, the thing you would turn, you know, and it, right. it was 
sort of L-shaped. I, I, I could draw it for you, but I, it's hard to describe. And we would turn and turn and turn and turn until the acetabulum was sufficiently reamed and could accept the, the, um, the cup and some cement. This was work. This was before power tools. And um, it, was, it was hard work. And that, that gentleman, um, you know, you do, you know, I, I, yeah, well, I, I won't use the profane expression that I uh, <laughs> usually speak to uh, describe what it is to cut somebody open and do a major operation and leave them in two weeks because you're on to the next rotation. So you never get to follow these people up in a decent fashion. And then you get into, your, you know, your, your practice and you realize, oh, they don't all do so well. But um, this gentleman that I did this, this first primitive total hip replacement on was the father of a child whom I later ran into at a children's hospital. A couple of years later, we were rotating through a children's hospital and he recognized me. Hey, you did my hip. It's doing great. And started twisting it all around and. But it was the, the best follow-up I had. It was a couple of years after I had done this surgery as a resident. And he was doing great with his total hit because of your instruments. Well, <laughs> I can honestly say I've never heard a surgeon sing a work song uh, reaming an acetone oh, no. with a power reamer. <laughs> I, oh, I see. Well, no, you won't because it's not work. <laughs> but I, I, was sil- I was silent. I was singing it in my mind. You know, and um, one of this, these old songs that my father used to sing in the shower. You know, these were the houses where you had one bathroom so you could hear everything that was going on. Well, in you, you, you inspired me. I'm going to learn a work song. I'm going to find a work song and learn the lyrics to it. <laughs> it's got to have, oh. Yeah, it's got to have uh. it in there somewhere. Like the, the song, The Chain Gang. Yes. Yeah. I was thinking of a I was thinking of a prison chain chain gang when you were originally singing yeah. that. So it's got to have that rhythm, you know. Well, tell me about uh mentorship. I know that's a big passion of yours. It's a huge passion of mine. Uh you've been all over this subject. Uh tell me about it. My mentoring started when I was in elementary school. And I <laughs> I remember um there was some big well, there was some dumb kid who was in junior high, and and well, I shouldn't call him dumb. That's being judgmental. But he was in junior high, and I was in elementary school, and I was mentoring him in math. And that's the earliest I remember um, tutoring or mentoring someone. But um, throughout the years, um, even though um, I'm not particularly fond of of young children. It's probably why God never gave me any babies. Uh, <laughs> these kids would find me and um, start hanging around me, and we'd do something that was fun, and it was work, and it was learning. We'd go down to the basement, you know, and I'd, 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 I'd show them something geometry, then geometry, and, and, and have them figure it out. Um, so it started informally, but um, my mother was always mentoring neighborhood children as well. She had a charm school in the in the basement. The basement was a very important part of black life in the suburbs, so-called suburbs. I grew up in Queens. Um, Cause that's where you go to entertain and, and, and have extra space. Uh, so she had a, the charm club 
and I started imitating her by, you know, having clubs for little kids um, where, you know, I, w- I would teach them something. As I got older uh, and went away to college, I, I, I met children um, from the Poughkeepsie neighborhood. You know, I, I, I'd take them to class with me. Um, I took them to New York. I took them to plays just for the exposure just to let them see that there were a lot of things in the world that um, they might be able to do in their future. Because if you, if you, as um, Dr. Jocelyn Elder said, you can't be what you can't see. That's right. So this went on um, throughout school. And um, when I became a, a person in private practice with a total of six of us as African-Americans, the opportunity came through the Gladden Society, which is the African American um, Society for um, Black Orthopedic Surgeons. Um, the opportunity came for us to try to open up the pipeline. The invitation went out to Gladden Society members. That number one, we were losing our young people, primarily our young Black males. They were dropping out of education. And by the time they got to middle school, they were disenfranchised. So we were challenged to try to set up programs where we could mentor these youngsters. And I said, well, well, my practice is perfect because it has people who look like them. This was uh, in 2007, I believe, that our mentoring program started. And um, we, uh, we approached a, a middle school in the neighborhood, which is primarily African-American, and had some 40 uh, sixth graders who started with us. And um, we met with them once a week and mentored them on something. Uh, tell me, what are you doing these days? What's, uh, what's got your attention? I'm still working. Um, thank God for telemedicine. It's unfortunate that the virus had to bring it out as a practicing tool, but it's perfect for me. As you look in the rearview mirror of your life, what is the big takeaway? If you don't have a spiritual formula for success, you're not going to survive. And there's there's going to be no serenity. You won't be able to figure it out. Um, And I don't want to downplay depression, but a spiritual boost will help to minimize many people's symptoms, many people's feelings. You know, I um, was out of, of work for a couple of years when my kidneys were removed. And I don't believe I mentioned that um, when I was supposed to have my kidney transplant from my sister and I woke up, you know, from that surgery, the doctor told me, um, we didn't take Catherine's kidneys. We did your biopsy first because the doctor had seen something strange in one of my kidneys. He said, you had cancer in both your kidneys. We had to take them both out. And you can't get a transplant now because we don't know if that cancer has spread. So we're going to have to wait at least a year and follow you and see what happens. And that was the sickest year of my life. But you know what I said, even though I was just waking up from anesthesia and groggy, when he said, we found cancer and we removed your kidneys. I said, praise God. I had cancer. Nobody knew I had cancer. I was getting a transplant. I was in kidney failure. I had cancer. He found it and he took it out before it consumed me. I know that cancer is gone because he would have not been led by God 
to go in there and do a biopsy. You don't do a biopsy before you give somebody a kidney. He did an open biopsy and found the cancer. And because of the the uh, circumstances of all of that, I know that I am cured. God would not have led them to do that otherwise. And it's been my faith in God that has gotten me through incidents like that. Has gotten me through the rigors of an orthopedic residency. And I'm still mentoring the young people today. They don't have to live down the street because I did something that had never been done before and they want to know how. That is awesome. Any advice uh, that you would give to surgeons just coming out? Find someone to mentor you. Find someone. Uh, I'm organizing um, a group of mentors through the Gladden Society and also through the Black Women Orthopedic Society, a new society that has formed. People, maybe not quite as old as I, but um, who have had the experience of orthopedics and orthopedic training and have gotten through and have gotten through successfully and are um, happy with what they're doing and of their right mind to set themselves up as mentors for those who are going through. Because, you know, if um, you don't extend that hand down to those coming behind you, they're going to crash and burn in a pile at the bottom. They're not going to make the climb. So those of us who have been successful need to learn to mentor others, even if it's a matter of going over in-service exams with them. On Now we have tools like uh, Zoom and Skype. No excuse not to be in contact with these children. We're losing a lot of children of color from this profession. Remember, for years, uh, go to the academy and just on the sales rep side, almost every orthopedic rep, mm-hmm. no, I would say 100%, it was just white males. And uh, But there's been a shift. I'm seeing much more females in this now. And I have seen such an influx of people of color uh, coming into this side of the business as well. So um, yeah. it's moving the right it's just direction. moving a little slowly, <laughs> too slowly. African-Americans are still 2%. I, I just just under two percent of the orthopedic population, and it, it'll stay there unless we we help the situation. We do something about the situation. So, what do you think should be done? Uh, get into the communities and and say, hey, I, I mean, I've made presentations. Uh, our church had a mentoring program for a lot of the at-risk youth in a town I lived in, and I came in there and showed them implants and showed them what I did and. And for many of them, it was like, I, I never heard of this before. Didn't know anything about uh, joint replacement or or medicine, period, for the most part. Uh, is that what it's going to take? It's just real hands-on, getting in there and... Take a lot of things by a lot of people, that people who just care. And if the world is going to ever improve, we need all people to have a stake in this. Have you heard of Nth Dimension? I am not aware of that, no. Inthimensions, an organization started by one of my mentees, Dr. Bonnie Mason, orthopedic surgeon. Uh, And um, I think they've been going for a good 12, 15 years. The most successful medical mentoring program in the country. And they take children who are in medical school or in residency 
um, and expose them, make sure they get to the academy meetings, pay for them to have transportation and a room, um, set them up with a mentor and give them all the encouragement there is. They don't all go into orthopedics. But this year, <clears throat> I think there were eight students um, who applied for the match in orthopedics. They had eight uh, potentially orthopedics <clears throat> um, students, and they all matched in their residency by the help they got. Mock oral exams, mock boards. These, these are the things that we need to do. There's one person in the country doing that, a young woman named Bonnie Simpson Mason. Her organization could use support so they can buy sawbones and have these young people see how it feels to drill a femur and put an implant in it just to have a head start like my mother made sure that my sister and I got. I mentored the young men in Leesburg, Florida, for 10 years and the interest of my practice they, they got a little disenfranchised and they dropped out it got to the point that I was the one meeting with these children every week and there were financial incentives for good grades good, good um, GPAs uh, there were outings I took um 17 young men who had never been out of Florida on a four-day trip to Washington, D.C. The museums, Congress, um, it's just everything. We walked, we were in a position where we could walk everywhere. Um, the Capitol building, they, they got to see a great deal of Washington, D.C. I had their parents as chaperones, and it was a good trip, and they learned a lot. They learned that a world exists outside of Leesburg, Florida, which is a little black community. Well, it's a city, but it uh, has one of the highest black populations in this vicinity. I'll never forget her. Her name was Savannah, and we were mentoring her. And my wife took her and some other girls to the beach, and she had never been out of West Greenville. And there is a certain landlocked aspect to their worldview, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She never even considered that there was another world out there and that things could be different for her and it could be better. And here's how to make that happen. It was it was exciting and depressing at the same time. It was exciting that uh, this was a real opportunity with her, but depressing that there's so many other Savannahs out there that, yeah. that really don't know anything outside of their neighborhood. Well, you have to start somewhere. Yeah. You have to start somewhere. These these we flew into Baltimore. When we got on the plane, these boys were in complete silence and complete awe. None of them had ever been on an airplane before. And this by now they were ranging from sixth grade to twelfth grade. And we had been mentoring them for a while. When the plane went up in the air, you could hear, ooh, you know, the flight <laughs> attendants were smiling. You know, they had right. never felt this before. And right. um, there was cloud cover. When we broke through cloud cover and the sun was there, ah, you know, just being in a plane and taking off was such an experience for them. A, a bus had been arranged to take us from Baltimore to D.C. by way of Blacks in Wax Museum. Now, I don't know if you've ever, ever heard of that, but there are wax figures of many Black figures in the past, from Harriet Tubman to even a slave ship. What it was like to be on that slave ship. That was in Baltimore. So from there, you know, we went into D.C. But just driving through the city 
was fascinating for them because you could look out your window and see long streets all lined up going as far as you could see. We don't have that in Florida. We got little communities and little towns and subdivisions, but they looked and said, oh, I want to I want to live here. Oh, I want to work in this city. I want to be down here in Washington, D.C. Just to open the eyes of young people and let them know that there are places they've never seen that have all kinds of things to offer them. You know, this this is worth it alone. Um, and I did this for 10 years. But I'll tell you that after the 10 years, when our seniors were still making substandard SAT scores and we had, uh, you know, paid SAT professors to come in, educate them as to what the exam was like and, you know, how to recognize things you already know. You know, we got four kids, four people showed up on a Saturday. None of them could drive. That means their parents chose not to invest their time in this. Or maybe they didn't even tell their parents. And then got lousy scores on the SATs and went to the same community college that I had learned about um, when I first came down there. That was a two-year school. And kids went there because they could get in there. And then their plan was to go to a regular college in two years. I said, well, what makes you think you're going to, you know, 70% of the, of the children never went on to get a college degree. And I said, I've spent 10 years and obviously I don't know what I'm doing because I'm not getting the outcomes that I, I had hoped for. So my conclusion was that I started too late. I have dreamed for years of starting a school for young people of color or other disadvantageous situations at the age of three. And there's a school like that up in um, the Panhandle that a friend of mine has connections to. And they show three-year-olds reading chapter, what do they call them, chapter books? <laughs> right. <laughs> Our children can do a lot more than we give them credit for. My dream is to see a school that starts at the age of three, like my mother did, teaches children to read and write, addition and subtraction, teaches them Mandarin Chinese, and then they pick up a second language in a couple of years when their brains can digest this information. Maybe by then Mandarin Chinese won't be the the language. Maybe it'll be Japanese or (laughs) something else. But you see where I'm going with that. Yeah. That's a noble goal, doctor. Well, I had identified a building, but um, things weren't moving along fast enough. And then I had recently joined a church. I think I had been at the church for three years that had been kicked off of out of this facility and out of that room. And we were moving out of a synagogue because we couldn't find a place to permanently congregate. So a time came to get our own land, get our own church after being kicked around. We did find um, an Episcopalian, no, Methodist church that had a, um, a smaller building that we were able to rent and use for services, but it wasn't ours. So the pastor assigned some of the men the task of looking for property, looking for land. And uh, they, they found um, property that was up to a million dollars because it was on a prominent road or it was here or there. And it was a couple of acres, maybe up to 10 acres, and, and you could get some stuff on there. You could build some stuff on the end, and this would be a chapel. To get to my home, I passed a cow pasture every day, hayfield, call it what you like. And I looked into it, 160 acres for $1.5 million. Mm. We bought that a year ago because I said so. I, <laughs> and listen, if you don't have vision and faith, I'm not going to call it nerve or, you know, but you don't see yourself failing, you can accomplish a lot. 
168 acres, the largest purchased by an African Methodist Episcopal Church in its history. I believe we date back to the 1700s. It will hold a sanctuary. It will hold retirement housing for elder pastors. It will hold an assembly hall where we can have speakers and even concerts rather than paying millions of dollars to have this done in Orlando when the church organizations all over the country get together. But the first thing we're going to put on that land is a school, mm. a school that will grow through high school and university. If we have to put up permanent, you know, portable uh, schoolhouses, as yeah. they call them, if we have to put up portable schoolhouses, we are going to start with three-year-olds. Then we won't have to have our hands out. And then came COVID. You just made a mess <laughs> out of everything. Oh, man. But it's time to um, to organize. It, it, it won't be here yeah. always. It's time to organize and um, be ready to start our plan. Dr. Thomas, I am so thankful to get your story out there. And what you've mined out of the storms you've experienced uh, is extremely important. And your contributions to our uh, industry and the African-American medical community have just been so impactful. I'm really appreciative that you came on to share that with us. Well, I'm I'm very thankful that you you got me. You finally got a hold of me. I, <laughs> my, my time is not my own, and and people would think that by 70 years old, you know, hasn't she slowed down yet? Um, <laughs> no. But um, I'm still here and I'm still busy. Um, I I wanted to mention that when I was too sick to work because of the the kidney cancer and being on dialysis and boy, oh boy, um, roadblock after roadblock, block, excuse me, roadblock <laughs> after roadblock to getting a kidney transplant um, kept me, you know, out of work. But I began to write because I'm not an idle person. I, I just can't sit still. I have to have a couple of projects. I started writing my, my autobiography and um, took me 17 years to get it published. But it, it did get published, and it's called God Spare Life. And uh, that has been my life, God Spare Life. I, I shouldn't have been here. I shouldn't have survived what I've been through. But I, I, I wasn't the one to make that decision. Nobody made that decision. God made that decision. I published, you know, I published that book in 2007. It's an amazing book. I'm looking right at my copy. I'm going to definitely put a link in the show notes for my audience to be able to pick up a copy. And just an amazing story everything that you've walked through. And and I just love your determination. Uh, I mean, I, I firmly believe that nothing is impossible. And you, you've lived that out. You haven't let anything stop you, even when you've been faced with things that would have shut a lot of people down. And I just love your passion and your zeal of just moving forward. And we're going to do this thing <laughs> uh, in spite of everything. I love that. I love that. Thank you. And I'd also like to mention that um, Dr. Augustus White, who's just um, one of the pillars of orthopedic surgery, has written a book called Overcoming. Uh, one chapter is dedicated to me, huh. and that's due to release in uh, January, January 26th. Um, it's available for advanced purchase from Amazon. He's written some other books. Um, one was called Seeing Patients which of course is a double entendre about um, you know, what we, what we see in people when we look at people, what we see, how we see other folks and um, making us aware. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Thomas, and to all of my listeners. Happy National Salesperson's Day. That's your gift right there. What an amazing conversation. What an amazing life. She has such a strategic mind. What stood out to me was that strategic theme in things like the kids. Catch them at three years old. Catching osteoporosis before you have a hip fracture. So when she says something like, find a mentor, it's not an emergency room situation like most of us do as reps. We find somebody to help us after a disaster or we're in the middle of a disaster in the OR and we're reaching out on the phone. That's not the way to do it. It's to find people to help you through this thing when everything's going relatively good. You know, this industry is changing changing, changing. A friend of mine told me about a distributor telling a group of people at a dinner about uh, the company was going to hit their numbers. People were talking about the cuts and commissions and travel budgets for the corporate people and on and on and on. But he said they are going to hit their numbers. They're going to hit their quarterly earnings call numbers. And that means a lot of things are going to change And a lot of things are on the table, things that can affect everybody, including the guy talking right now. So do we find someone to help us to build that house correctly so that when Hurricane Hugo strikes, it's going to withstand it? The time to be thinking about that construction is now not in the middle of the storm, but strategically thinking about finding a mentor and getting that construction as strong as you can when the eventual storms do hit, and it's inevitable. There's a bunch of different ways to connect in this uh, connected world when you want to be a mentor or be a mentee. All kinds of things in social media right now, whether it's Facebook, LinkedIn, on and on and on. Uh, There's Mastermind Groups, a project that uh, I'm very passionate about now. And there's Doc Plus Social, a wonderful website that Dr. Dasa has started, and I think it's going to be a great platform for the exchange of information that can help you listening to this show, whether you're a surgeon or a rep. It's going to give an opportunity for surgeons to connect with surgeons, reps to connect with reps, and then cross-pollination between all those things. Information that can help you so that if and when Hugo ever strikes, at least you got a chance of surviving some of this stuff because you've got other people helping you that maybe have been through this before and that can help you navigate, or you've been through it before and you can do what Dr. Thomas spoke of, of paying that forward through other people that may be going through some of this stuff for the first time. So that's it. I hope to see you all on Doc Social. Go online, set up an account, and connect. Speak into other people's lives and allow other people to speak into your lives. Thank you again to Dr. Thomas for speaking into our lives. You know, you're really committed to this thing when you're going to take over an administration building, potentially lose your place in college. I mean, that is commitment. Don't get any ideas. I don't want to read in the news that a bunch of reps took over the purchasing department of an HCA hospital out in the Midwest, demanding an end to these capitated pricing deals. (laughs) I hope you all have an awesome week. Uh, I appreciate each and every one of you, and I really appreciate you being out there.